Good morning, everybody. We can uh, open up our Bibles once again to the letter of James. And uh, I've really enjoyed already our meditation that Graham's brought to us about the giving nature of our God, because this is actually something, in fact, it's the main thing that James wants us to understand in these opening verses of his letter. Now, I realised that it was um, actually October, (laughs) time goes so fast, that we started looking at this letter and we haven't been back here since. So, um, and there's a lot of people here that weren't there when we started it um, back then. And so really the, the key points, but for those that weren't with us, to remember that James is, he is a man of action. He is a man that is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is a man who was the, the most influential figure in the Church of Jerusalem there after the Lord's ascension. He was, uh, he, he was in, he referred to as the Bishop of Jerusalem. But what's really amazing in, in this letter is that he doesn't name drop the Lord Jesus Christ to say that I am the brother of Jesus. In fact, he says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I am the servant of Jesus Christ. And even that little phrase, we thought that that is a, an astounding thing to say for a Jew, a first century Jew. This is the, the same, this is an audacious claim that, that James is making. This is actually the very thing that they crucified the Lord because he said he was Lord. And yet we saw that James is saying, I am a slave to this man, Jesus, the Lord, Jesus, God. Jesus, Yahweh, the Greek word there, Kyrios. And so he aligns himself to his older brother, our Lord Jesus Christ, in this way. And of course, he's writing, it says there in the first verse, to the the tribes, the 12 tribes scattered. And really for us, how we can apply that today is for God's scattered children. This is a letter for God's scattered children, for anybody who comes to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever they find themselves, in whatever culture or society or family or situation, we are all, in some way, God's scattered children. In fact, the very nature of the church isn't that it's all centralised in one location or even under one banner. In fact, it's, it's all over the world. And it's many different colours, it's many different tongues, it's many different tribes. And that's what's so amazing, the fact that we are all yet one in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so this is who, and this is, this is who James is writing to and this is who James is. And the clue, and the clue why James is writing the letter is there in verse 4. And what you see here in verse 4, we'll read our verses shortly, but... This is just for background. In verse 4, you have the heart of a pastor. Paul often referred to this same theme in his letter, that he was wanting the hearers and the recipients of the letter to be perfect, to be entire, and wanting nothing. Wanting for nothing. He is wanting the church to be a mature church to be a full-grown church. 
That doesn't mean we're going to be sinlessly perfect this side of eternity in the presence of God. But he is wanting us to be sound. He is wanting us to be steadfast in our faith. He is wanting us to be able to stand the trials and the sufferings and perhaps even the persecutions that will come and above all to stand. And that is the key theme of why he is writing this whole letter. And it's a, it's a beautiful letter. The more you read it, the more you understand how beautiful it is. It's, it's almost, a, it's the New Testament version of Proverbs. That's what it is. And if you read it in the English, it's beautiful. And then if you understand how he's phrased it in the Greek, it's even more amazing. It's almost poetic. And again, this man of action, James, the wisdom of his writing under the Holy Spirit in the fact that he can use such economy of language to make such profound statements. And they're statements that are just so firm and they're so assuring. So this is why he's wanting, he's wanting to impart this radical Christian living and devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ in every verse. He's wanting to impart the holiness into the life of the believers. And we see this in this section that we're going to now read together from verse 5. He says this, Now if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not the man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. Pretty stern words, isn't it? Pretty stern words. Go straight to the point. And you know what, James, his, his, uh, the way in which he communicates an idea is through word association. It's another little clue to keep in the back of your mind. For example, where he says trials, the word he wants us to associate with trials is joy. Okay, Where he says testing, the word he wants to associate with testing is steadfastness. And here, the word that he uses for maturity, he wants us to associate with wisdom. Okay, Maturity of the believer, he wants that to be understood, to be associated with, with wisdom. And also, the word that he uses for lacking, he wants us to associate with ask. Okay? So we want to be mature believers then we need wisdom. And if we know that we're lacking in wisdom, he wants us to ask. That's really the summary of these verses together. You know, in Christian's journey in the Pilgrim's Progress, uh, one of my favourite characters, actually, that he meets, this might sound odd, but one of my favourite characters is actually Mr Worldly Wiseman. Now, it's not because of the excellence of his character, far from it, but it is because of the way Bunyan portrays Mr. Worldly Wiseman 
in the story. And when Christian meets Mr. Worldly Wiseman, he's there just before the little wicket gate. He's got the burden on his back. And he is confronted by this rather pompous, well-dressed chap who seems to have it all together. Okay? He's oozing with luxury, it says. And uh, I'll just read this little dialogue between Christian and Worldly Wiseman. Worldly Wiseman says to Christian, Who bid thee to go this way to be rid of thy burden? Christian replies, A man that appeared to me to be a very great and honourable person, and his name, as I remember, is Evangelist. Bah! says Wiseman. Beshrew him of his counsel. There is not a more dangerous and troublesome way in all the world than is that unto which he hath directed thee. And that thou shalt find, if thou wilt be ruled by his counsel, thou hast met with something as I perceive already, for I see the dirt of the slough of despond is upon thee. Ah, but that slough is the beginning of thy sorrows that do attend those that go in and out of that way. Hear me, for I am older than thou. Thou art like to meet in that way that thou goest with wearisomeness, with painfulness, with hunger, perils, nakedness, sword, lions, dragons, darkness, and in a word, death, and what not. These things are certainly true. Having been confirmed by many testimonies, why should a man so careless cast himself away by giving heed to so stranger as this evangelist? You know, this is a great summary of the world's view of the Christian faith. It says, why put yourself through all of the torment? Why put yourself through all of the maturing, all of the journey that you need to do? Why do it to yourself? Take the easy way. And of course, Worldly Wiseman direct, directs him to the so-called easy way, which turns out to be far more perilous than the way that Christian finds himself on. You know, and James here, he's, he's got this, uh, this wonderful uh, way of just getting straight to the point, doesn't he? And he says here in verse 5, If any of you lack wisdom... Let him ask of God. Now, the two things we need to just consider here for a moment. Number one, what is wisdom? What is it that we're actually asking for? We have to have that really clear in our mind. And the way that we do that is to simply look at Scripture because this is actually the book of wisdom. This is the book of wisdom. It, it is so full of it and it is all through it. And you only have to just consider some of the... the um, the great men of the Bible, they were, they were actually educated in a particular kind of wisdom. Sometimes it was actually a wisdom of the world. For example, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Daniel was schooled in the wisdom of the Babylonians. Saul was schooled in the wisdom of the Jews at the feet of Gamaliel. And of course, Solomon... He had a particular wisdom and it was useful in the affairs of life and state. And Solomon there, um, the key to understanding the conundrum that seems in Solomon, that he was the wisest, 
man who ever lived. The key word there is was the wisest, past tense. And the further he got away from God, there was a direct correlation to the wisdom that he demonstrated. And so we see here in these these great men of Scripture that they all possessed in themselves a wisdom and if they didn't have their wisdom grounded in God, grounded in God's word, we, saw, we see that they came unstuck massively. This word wisdom, it's, uh, it, the Greek is Sophia, they, uh, now used as a, and, and oftentimes used in, um, still in uh, Greek and Italian cultures particularly, Sophia, um, it means a specialised wisdom. It's a wisdom that is not of this world because it doesn't find its source in this world. It is a wisdom that is otherworldly. It is a wisdom that is heavenly. It is a wisdom that is God-breathed. And this is the wisdom that we want to be praying for. And this is the wisdom we also obviously need to understand that we lack. By ourselves, on our own, we lack this type of wisdom tremendously. This is actually the same wisdom that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 1 and he says that he will use this wisdom to destroy the wisdom of the wise and to bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. This is a wisdom of God. And what is so amazing about this wisdom is that now that we are in our Lord Jesus Christ... He has become for us, the Bible says, the wisdom of God that is our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. He has become for us wisdom from God. And so perhaps the better question to ask is not not what is wisdom, but the better way to learn it is to actually ask the question, who is wisdom? Who is wisdom? And the answer to that question is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is wisdom personified. We have a sketch of wisdom in Proverbs in chapter 4. We have wisdom crying in the streets. We have a description of what wisdom is. But in its fullness, we can learn of the Lord, the wisdom of God. We can learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wisdom that is that otherworldly wisdom. And that is what is compelling James here for these young Christians in this early church. Paul also writes in, to the Colossians that in Christ, in him, is found all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There is nothing outside of Christ that we need to know about to see the great wisdom and knowledge of God And that is what is so amazing about our Christian faith, that we have been brought into that unison and that union and that fellowship with the Son. And now through his his eternal spirit, that very same spirit of wisdom that was in the Lord Jesus Christ is the same spirit of wisdom that is now in every single believer. It is the same Holy Spirit of wisdom. Brothers and sisters, isn't it a blessing? Isn't it a tremendous wonder? Doesn't it just bow the heart to know that we 
are being taught in the school of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are being taught in his, at his feet. We're not at the, the feet of some academic. We're not at the feet of Gamaliel like Paul was before his conversion. We're not at the feet of any worldly wise. No, we're at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is exactly where James was. This, this amazing man of God. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ, he wanted his disciples to really understand this. And before he went to the cross, he actually said to them, look, I'm going to give you a mouth of, I'm going to give you a mouth, something to speak with, and I'm going to give you wisdom. And it's going to be done in such a way that even your enemies will not be able to contradict you. And the best example of this is when we see Stephen in Acts chapter 6 because Stephen actually says after his, his amazing sermon, his, his preaching, Luke records that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus was talking about there in Luke 21 and is fulfilled in Stephen's sermon there. Wisdom takes the knowledge of God. It takes the knowledge of God and then it applies it to our everyday life, into our everyday circumstances and into the way in in our relationships, in the way that we spend our money, in the way that we spend our time, in the way that we use our tongue. It touches every single life and uh, every single part of life and that is why James wants this to be brought to our hearing, brought to our reading as soon as he starts this letter almost. You know, it, it also is the answer to the pressing questions of life. The, the, you know, why does God allow this to happen? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Wisdom actually rests. Wisdom actually knows that, that God is on the field when he is most invisible. Wisdom says that though he slay me, yet will I trust him. That's what Job said. This is but the beginning of wisdom. So the next question we might ask, if we understand that wisdom, being in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, being demonstrated to us in our Lord Jesus Christ. It would do us well then to ask us how we get this wisdom. How do we get this? How how do we achieve this? And James tells us, black and white, right here. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given to him. There is just something so beautiful in this teaching the simplicity of the doctrine of going to a God in prayer and understanding that that God is a generous God. He is a God that is so full of goodness so ready to give 
Consider the attributes of God just for a moment. Consider the the eternal, never-ending holiness of God. The holy nature of our God. Consider the infinite glory of our God. Let your heart be, be filled with a vision of his righteousness. The infinite righteousness of our God. Consider his eternal grace for a moment. Consider his um, infinite justice for a moment. And then with that same lens of infinity and everlastingness, consider the generosity of God. He is a God that gives. He is a God that when he has given, as we were reminded by our brother this morning in that hymn, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. This is James's God. This is the God who has come down from heaven in his Son. Heaven has given us the Son. The Father has sent the Son. The Son has given himself in life on this earth. He has expelled himself. The giving nature of our God and the giving, it has this amazing uh, anchor, if you like, in this, this idea that there is a singleness to his giving. What I mean by that, there is, a, there is a singular devotion to the nature of his giving. The root word here, haplos, in the Greek, actually means sound eye. One of, a, one of sound eye. One of a single eye. In Matthew chapter 6, just after where we read this morning, I'll just read it, read it to you, just that, that one verse that the Lord Jesus mentions. He says that your eye is a lamp for your body, a pure eye. Let sunshine into your soul. In verse, 20, uh, verse 22 of chapter 6, the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Okay? So this is the root of the word. The idea that here is that there is a complete selflessness, that there is a singular concern for the other party, that there is a, almost a, a preoccupation with the giving, a preoccupation. It's as almost like he could do nothing else but give. James is wanting us to understand that we are to ask him for the taking. That's what he's wanting us to understand. That if we lack this, that we are to remember that God is a God who is so generous. That's the idea here. He giveth to men liberally. It's probably the greatest understatement of Scripture to say he giveth liberally. He's wanting us to realise that this God is eternally looking to give and to bless. And it is to that God, it is to the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is the God that we approach when we ask for wisdom. 
when we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ask and it shall be given you. Ask in the will of the Lord. Ask according to his word. Is this according to his word? Absolutely. God wants us to be mature. God wants us to be wise. God wants us to be vessels where the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in and work in. And this is exactly what James is getting at and wants them to, re- to realise that this God who you have come to know through the, through the Lord Jesus Christ is the God who gives. John Cotton, the uh, early, I suppose you'd call him a Puritan, he started his clergy life in England but then ended up in North, uh, North Hampshire, Massachusetts in the early uh, days of the Americas and John Cotton says these words on this, on this very verse. These, these words reprove man's squint-looking eyes. You know what it means to have squint-looking eyes? You know, you're, sort of, you're looking with somebody with suspicion. You know, you're sort of like, you've got your eyes sort of half shut at them. You're like, you really mean that? You know, it's, a, it's an old term, but it's, it's very fitting. You know, these words reprove man's squint-looking eyes. Looking at God with suspicion. Are we squint-eyed this morning? Are we looking at God, the God who gives generously? Are we looking at him like he doesn't want to give us something? Like he doesn't want to give us wisdom when we ask for it? Of course he does. He wants to lavish it upon us. Our gaze, however, our gaze needs to be fixed upon him. Our gaze needs to be looking up to him. It needs to be considering the goodness of our God. Not through squint eyes. No, no, no. Through eyes beholding. Through eyes beholding the wonders of his grace and what he has given to us. The the Puritans had another term for that and that was called eyeing God. They were were constantly, constantly coming back to this idea, this notion of eyeing God. We're eyeing God. We're looking at God. We want to see more of him. We want to understand more of who he is like. And so the fourth question that we ask, what hinders us? What what hinders us? It's a good question to ask. What hinders us from having... If it's as simple as coming to God and asking, well, why don't we do it? What hinders us? James tells us that too. James tells us that. You know, in, um, in Genesis chapter 3, everything can be traced back to uh, Genesis, by the way, when it comes to man's sinfulness and lacking. In Genesis chapter 3, when... Satan first approached Eve and he says, did God really say to you, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? So he questions what God has said. He questions God's word and and then Eve um, corrects, corrects Satan. Then he pushes on this point and he says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good 
and evil. And after this statement, brothers and sisters, that is when the seed was sown in Eve's heart and in Adam's that God was holding back something. That is when the seed was sown that he was going to convince them that there was something else that God could have given them that he wasn't giving them. And this is really the root cause of why why we lack. Because we don't understand the nature of God and who God truly is. We have a wrong view of God. And that is why it's so important to stay in God's word, to keep coming together, to learn from the word of God, to keep looking to him with that single-mindedness. You know, the Lord Jesus, again in Matthew chapter 6, says that no man can serve two masters, just after that other verse we read, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will hold one, hold to one and despise the other. You know, this is really the, the core here of what James is saying. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, he summarises it. A double-minded man. And actually, the, the word here, it's, it's almost the opposite of the, the idea of singleness. Um, in fact, the word, uh, it's not found really anywhere else in Scripture... Some, some scholars actually say James has conjuncted two words together. But it means really, literally, two-souled. So, two, in other words, you've got two different people living in the same person. So it's a, it's a term that he, that he has coined, dicycos. Dicycos is the term. I mean, we're not talking about, obvi- obviously, a, an intellectual doubt. We're not talking about that. No, no, we're talking about rather a doubt of the heart where the affections are split. This is going to be the thing, James says, that will stand in the way of us obtaining this wisdom. But let him ask in faith, okay? Nothing wavering. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the wave of a sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Picture this in the Galilean's mind, remember? James would have been all too familiar with these storms that swept down upon the Sea of Galilee out of nowhere. And he would have been all too familiar with the idea of waves being driven and tossed by the sea being whipped up and the boat being carried this way and that by a force that was not seen, the wind. This is the picture that James uses here to describe the person who doesn't have this single-mindedness towards God. You know, the Bible and the Lord Jesus has a name for this, It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Where we say one thing, but we do another. Or we want to do something, but we don't do it. 
the hypocrisy. And it can be an absolute curse if left unchecked. This is what James is, is warning us of. He wants us to have this single-mindedness, this single-heartedness, this single-soulness, if you like, towards God. And to not let things creep in that can cause hypocrisy to flourish, but rather to snuff it out. Brothers and sisters, have we taken our eyes off the Saviour to such an extent that this hypocrisy has crept in? Because if it has, our prayers will be hindered. And if we come to God and ask him with hypocrisy in our hearts, with a double-mindedness, we will not receive of the Lord. That's how black and white this is. We will not receive of the Lord. For let not the man think that he shall receive anything from the Lord. The pretty sobering words. But they're sobering for a good reason because God wants his people to be growing in the faith. God wants his people to be mature in the faith. If we have taken our eyes off the Saviour, if we have a somewhat clouded vision of the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he has done, brothers and sisters, can I just urge us to just go to that throne of grace, cast aside whatever the sin is that is in our life, lay it before that throne where you will find grace to help in time of need and go to God with that singleness of heart. Have that time of refreshing in his presence. Realise that he is the great God and saviour of our Lord Jesus Christ who is ready to give and in fact wanting to give. This generous God who singularly gives to his church and his people. This is the remedy, brothers and sisters. This is the remedy to that hindrance of hypocrisy, of double-mindedness. This is the remedy to come come and realise who we are asking of. Let us have that fresh vision, that fresh appreciation of who God is and what he has done. Let us realise the great generosity of our God. I mean, even the table this morning, has it not reminded us of the great generosity of God? Has it not reminded us of these things? To press on to maturity, to press on with holiness in our lives, to press on with goodness and loving kindness one to another. If any man lack, let him ask with that singleness of soul and heart and mind to God who giveth generously. Let's just pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and are just overwhelmed with your goodness to us. 
Lord, we confess how often we come to you with such a low view. Our vision and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ is clouded with the affairs of this world or with sin. Father, we ask that you would just take up, bind up the brokenhearted. Father, take up that which has fallen. Help us, Lord, to have that clear view of our Lord Jesus Christ, a clear view of your glory. And Father, we pray that we would take hold of that that promise, that realise that every promise of God is yea and amen in our Lord Jesus Christ as we come to that throne to ask. O Lord, grant us the wisdom that we lack, Lord. Grant us the wisdom. Help us to grow in maturity and holiness. Help us, Lord, also to be a blessing one to another. Father, that we might not keep these resources to ourselves like hoarders, but we might be prepared to share with the world and to tell others of the tremendous resources that we have in the God of our salvation. And so, Lord, bless us now with your presence throughout the remainder of this day, through our time of fellowship. Lord, bless us and carry us into the week with our remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ, our thoughts of him. Father, from your word, we just pray now that you would apply it to our hearts, change our characters, change our minds, change our wills, conform them into your sons. We humbly ask in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.